Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala sallina wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Allahumma salli wa sallam wa zil wa barik ala sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Allahumma salli wa sallam ala sayyidina Muhammad wa alihi wa sallam. Allahumma salli ala sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala send blessings and prayers upon the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You know, one thing that I would, kind of my own reflection, is that as long as the people who are here today continue, I'm okay. I'm very happy every week to see the familiar faces that we see, uh, old old friends and new friends, and uh, to have the group that we have. So, Zakumul Khairan for coming. And one of the things that I kind of, and I hope other people are starting to notice, is that although we're not generally accustomed to taking a long time to go through material. I probably were not accustomed to spending two hours on one and a half lines of poetry. Um, and obviously, you know, I hope that we'll try to keep a balance so that it doesn't get excessive. But part of the hope behind that is that you realize that when something is in the front of your mind for an extended period of time, you're able to make more connections to it, which kind of came up in the last session too. Uh, and I hope that people are starting to see that. I mean, I, can, I personally can't count how many times I've quoted this first line of the poem in the last three weeks. You know, Is it because of the neighbors that you remember in, these, in the area of the Salam? This first point that we talked about has come up so many times. Um, just And the concept of Atlal that we talked about, the, the, the remnants of the area where the loved one used to be, and how then just the memories work with that and so on. Um, so hopefully we'll find benefit. So last time we left off on the second line of the poem, which says, "Am habbat al-rihu min tanqai kaadima, wa awmad al-barqu fi al-zalmai min idomi," which, as we said, means, "Or has the wind blown from before kaadima, and the lightning flashed in idom's dark?" So the first half of the the the, the line is about. The wind blowing from the direction of Kavlima, and we said that this direction of Kavlima is the direction of the city of Medina, uh, and that also Idom is a mountain or a valley area near Medina as well. And the second half of it is, or did lightning flash from the direction of Idom? So the idea is that there, it's dark, and then there's a flash of lightning, and that flash of lightning inspires you to think about that direction, and that direction is the direction of where the Prophet ﷺ lived. And so that's the direction of the Beloved. It reminds you of that place. So, we want to take some time here to talk about this idea of light. So, the ima- the, you know, you have these multiple images being used in, in, in these first two lines. The first one, as we talked about in depth and detail, was an idea of the actual space that you live in. And then the second major image uh, was the idea of the wind. And we had that story. I don't know if Yusuf and Ismail remember the story. Do you remember the name of the story? About the wind and the sands? I don't remember the name. But you remember the story? Okay, alhamdulillah. Remember, if you guys remember the story about the tale of the sands and the wind and how it carried the water to the other side uh, of the desert. And just kind of the imagery and, and imagination that goes along with the idea of wind or a breeze and, and just what that means and how important it is to life. So the third one here is lightning. 
And so it brings up the imagery of light. And the imagery of light is a very commonly used image in the Qur'an and in the Sunnah of the Prophet It's a very commonly used image in general to relate to guidance versus misguidance, um, belief versus disbelief, and so on. So Allah in the Qur'an, as we know, He says so many different places. That Allah is the light of the heavens and the earth. Um, Allah says That Allah is the guardian of those who believe And he takes them out of darknesses into the light So the wording is actually really important That Allah does not take from darkness into light In the verse Allah takes from darknesses, plural, into the light, singular so the idea here is that there's so many things in life that can distract from the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is the existence of Allah. The ultimate truth is the example of the messengers. The ultimate truth is that we're going to die. The ultimate truth is that we're going to be held accountable. And there's so many things that can take us away from that. But it is Allah who always brings us back to that and recenters us on that. So if we have Allah on our minds, then we'll always be recentered on the direction that we need to go into. And this is one of the great uh, wisdoms and benefits of the daily prayers. Right? When you have five daily prayers that are recentering you on Allah, it keeps the darkness off of you. Uh, and this is also why we should try to, um, as much as possible, have some level of concentration in our prayers, which is a different topic. Number three is Allah guides to His light whomever He wills. Allah yadi that Allah guides to His light, whoever He wills. That this is there and He will guide. And that the Prophet ﷺ is described in the Qur'an as Siraj al-Munira. He's described as a, a, an illuminated lamp. That the Prophet ﷺ is an illuminated lamp. You know, you, you, and, and really the imagery is very strong. And, and of course part of what we should be thinking about and this will come up in a little bit later, but maybe we'll touch on it now. Part of what we should be thinking about is that the way of the Prophet ﷺ was not only for the Prophet ﷺ, it was for his followers as well. And it is the responsibility then of every believer to be also a shining light, a shining lamp. There should be some level of, uh, you know, as much as we don't unnecessarily co- uh, emphasize differences with others, there should be a difference between the believer and others. I mean, they, they, it's not, that's not a bad thing. That someone who believes in Allah, someone who really has firm conviction in that, there should be a difference in their behavior. That they're not going to make the same choices. They're not going to think about things in the same way. They're going to analyze things in a deeper way and so on and so forth. So there is this idea that the Prophet them then is, is this lamp in the midst of the darkness of of, of jahiliyyah in the midst of the darkness of misguidance um, you also have references in hadith for example of places where Allah is being mentioned being spaces of light you know like this idea that there's the angels that go about in the earth and they look for the gatherings of the remembrance of Allah and those gatherings of the remembrance of Allah are like beacons basically and the angels when they find these beacons they descend upon these gatherings and they, they protect them and then they raise the names of those who are in those gatherings to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they praise them and Allah also praises those people. So this idea of light uh, carries in so many different places. 
The other major thing to think about here when we think about Allah as light and the Prophet them as a guiding uh, force in our lives is that seeing with light is not the same as seeing without light. Okay, Seeing with light is not the same as seeing without light and the light can have varying degrees. So for example, uh, anyone have uh, a, a MacBook computer? Okay, so you know how you can control the contrast? And if you go too low on the contrast, what happens? If you go to the lowest, the screen turns off, right? <laughs> so this is the lowest level. You hit the contrast too low, the screen turns completely off. If you go a little bit higher, it's a little bit brighter. But you can go all the way up till it gets to the brightest level, right? Even when I sat down right now, the screen initially it was too low, so I had to turn it up. And so seeing with, with it and without it is different. You see this also with people who age, or when their eyes get weaker and so on. They're always saying there's not enough light in the room. We need more light in the room because we can't actually see what's happening in front of us. We can't, I can't see it the way that I used to see it. Um, and so the Prophet ﷺ said something very interesting. He said, It's a very interesting statement. He said, beware of the firasa. It's not really easy to translate, so we'll just keep the word there. Beware of the firasa of the believer, because the believer looks with the light of Allah. Okay, beware of the firasa of the believer, because the believer looks with the light of Allah. And uh, this is a very interesting concept. You know, it reminds me of this uh, story. I don't know if I should really. Some of you guys might know who I'm talking about, so maybe I shouldn't say it. But basically, a brother. He met a sheikh, and there was no way the sheikh could have known about the situation that was going on with him. It was totally in a different country, in a different place. There's no background or anything. And he said salam to him, and the first thing he said to him is he asked him about that situation. <laughs> and he was like, "This, there's no way to logically make sense out of this, right? But there's an idea that the person who believes very deeply in the law can see things that other people won't see. And, and this, the, the idea of Firasa as, as, as its own knowledge was a knowledge that was known to the Arabs historically. Um, there's levels of this, obviously, but there's actually just physical aspects of this that can be seen. Someone who's trained, they notice them. You know, they'll notice, like, people probably watch these TV shows on micro-expressions and things, but there are things that you can notice. You can see if you're observant enough that someone is upset or they're not upset or something is bothering them or something's just not right, you know, or, or they had an issue maybe before they came in. Or so, so there's any number of things that are going on. And Imam al-Shafi'i, Umar ibn Khattab was known to have very strong firasa. Imam al-Shafi'i was known to have very, very strong firasa um, that he could just look at people and they know like this is just not a good person or this is a really good person or this person has this problem. This person has that problem. It's a really kind of scary concept in some ways. But the comforting part of it is that that person who has that insight, they have that insight because of their closeness to Allah. So it's not something that they're going to abuse, inshallah. But there is this idea. Um, and that brings back the issue of outward realities and seeing beyond them to deeper things. You know, seeing beyond to the deeper things. The Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also says in a hadith Qudsi, a very, very important hadith. Uh, where he says that uh, the Prophet ﷺ says that Allah said 
that whoever um, it, or there's different narrations where it comes in the beginning or the end but basically it starts off by saying that a, my servant does not draw closer to me by anything more beloved to me than that which I have obligated upon them and they do after that they do those optional things until I become until they become beloved to me this is Allah who is speaking until they become beloved to me and when they do so I become the uh, hearing by which he hears, the eye by which they see, the hand by which they touch, and the foot by which they walk, and whoever declares war, uh, whoever harms a close servant of mine, then I will declare war on them. It's a very, very serious, very, very serious statement of Allah. And it's also the foundation of any serious spiritual development. You know, one of the things that tends to happen, if we're trying to be serious about our spiritual development, what usually happens is we want to take shortcuts or we want to do the things that we want to do and not necessarily what Allah wants us to do and so the path is very clearly laid out here that there is nothing that can draw you closer to Allah more than that which He has obligated upon you so what does that mean? that means if you want to come closer to Allah where do you start? you start with your prayers you start with your zakat you start with your fasting in Ramadan you start with your obligations towards your family. You start with your obligations to your close friends. You start with all of, all of the things also He has commanded us not to do. So not being disobedient or disrespectful to our parents is a huge one. Um, not infringing upon the rights and property of others. Not speaking ill of others. Um, not calling others names. Not having hatred in the heart towards other people. All of these kind of these are all obligations. So if you want to come closer to Allah, focus on the obligation. I know it feels really good to come closer to Allah by um, hanging out with the MSA under the guise of brotherhood and sisterhood. But you can probably come even closer to Allah by going to work or calling your mom or washing the dishes or any number of other things. It probably feels really good to come closer to Allah, like for example, be very personal, feels really good to come closer to the law, to Allah under the guise of reading a book. But you probably come closer to Allah under going and seeing if your sister needs help or whatever it might be. Right. So there's any any number of ways, but the first standard is that you have to look. Am I serious about this or not? If I am, then I have to look at the obligations first. And that's just, this is why the ulama always, they said, that there's the student of Islam should start with the obligations. What are those individual obligations on them? They study what is it that I have to know about Allah and His Messenger? What is it that I need to know about the hereafter? What is it that I need to know about akhlaq, about virtues and character and conducts and the purification of the soul and so on? What is it that I need to know about how to pray, how to fast? All of the basic things that I have to do. Then another major thing that people study is what are the rights of your parents? Another major thing that people will study is what are the, the dangers of the tongue? Because you have so many of the obligations and prohibitions carried in that one limb in your tongue. So to start there is, is, is a good place to start. So this is the first thing. The second thing then Allah says is that they, they then do those optional deeds until they become beloved to me. So those optional deeds are very important as well. You just have to make sure that the obligatory ones are done. And you do the optional ones until they become beloved to Allah. And then Allah says, I become the hearing by which they hear, and the eye by which they see, and the hand by which they touch. 
and the foot by which they walk. Does this mean that he's actually walking for them? Not really that, of course not. But Allah is inspiring the actions of the person and guiding the actions of the person so much so that it affects everything that they do. And he, he guides them in ways that are sometimes not um, understandable to other people. But this, is the, so this person now is looking with an elevated level of light. The level of light that they're looking with is elevated. So without this realization, we can actually miss out on a lot of beautiful things in life. You know, this idea that seeing with light is different. And um, there's a story that Sheikh Yahya Rudas, uh, may Allah preserve him, told about uh, Habib Omar, may Allah preserve him, that they were on a trip in Southeast Asia. And uh, long story short on the trip was that, you know, it's a tiring trip. Habib Omar, for people who know who he is, he's not a young man. He's pretty old. And he's going on this trip and they're asking him to speak in different places and attend events in different places and so on. And then they get to the airport and the time is very close to get on this flight. And they look at the passport and they realize that whoever was supposed to get the visa, they got the wrong visa. So they were supposed to get like a six month visa and they got a three month visa. So this means that the whole trip is going to fall apart right here in the airport, right? So he says, we're going, we're getting really upset. And I'm thinking to myself, who is responsible for this? And they messed it up. And now the sheikh is old. And this is disrespectful to the sheikh and all these different things. And he's really upset about it. And he says, he turns to Habib Omar and he's just sitting there, you know, smiling with his cane. And he tells him, listen, if you take anything from the trip, you take this from the trip. The person who's with Allah, it doesn't matter if they give or if it's taken from them. If they get or if they give. Right? He says, if they're given or if they're not given, it's the same to them. He's like, it's okay. We go on the trip, we don't go on the trip, doesn't make any difference. It's not going to change his situation. His situation is, Allah wills for him to go on the trip, he goes on the trip. Allah wills for him to not go on the trip, he doesn't go on the trip. Are you upset about it, mad about it, angry that they got you the wrong visa? No, doesn't matter. It's okay. Because the person who is with Allah, none of these things matter. And this is why Ibn Atta'ala, secondary, rahimahullah, he said, um, That if it's possible that Allah has given something to you and prevented you by it. And it's possible that He has prevented something from you and given you something by it. And this is very, you know, very, very important to think about. Hard to consider in the moment. Easier to consider in retrospect. You look back on life and you think about things that didn't happen or did happen and what they led to. Um, and of course, when one is connected to Allah, then they, they see these things. But that's a different type of, of vision. Uh, another example of this, a secular example, seeing with light is not the same as seeing without light, is from one of the stories that we studied in high school that I would say like planted the seeds of possibly believing in God later on. And that was Plato's allegory of the cave. So you guys know Plato's allegory of the cave? You guys remember this one from school? So Plato, he tells this really interesting story. That imagine there's these people in a cave, right? And they're stuck sitting. And they can't turn around. Okay, it's probably the easiest way to think about this would be to use this sister's row. So the first row, sorry, all of you. 
you guys are stuck in the cave. This, this first row, you guys are stuck in the cave, and you can't turn behind you. Only thing you can see is this wall over here. And there's a fire, there's a light in the back near the entrance. Fire. And the second row of the sisters are like puppeteers. They're playing things out. And the, f the shadow of what they're doing is coming from that light and reflecting on that wall. But the only thing you've ever seen in your life is what's on that wall. So you think that what's on that wall is reality, right? This is the limitation of your vision. Whatever's on that wall is reality. Everyone's with, you guys all hypothetically are living in the cave, inshallah. So everything that's happening is on that wall and that's your understanding of life. And then at some point, you're released. Right, so you, you turn around and you realize that's not actually real. What's real is them who were making it's their shadow that's on that wall. That's actually what's real, right? But see, the thing is, is that you were in a cave in the first place, <laughs> so even that wasn't real. So, this is your second, he says, this is like your second level of understanding is that you see those people and they're like the actual reality now, but then you realize there's a fire back there. And there's an opening, and the cave actually goes out to the world. Right? And that's actually the real situation, is all the way out there. Now, what, what he says is, um, it's a very actually interesting terminology that is used. And uh, he says it in reference to, what if there was one person, so only one person out of this group, they get to turn around and they see the reality and then they go out and they go out to the surface and they see the sun and everything that actually exists and how would they respond if they were told that they needed to go back and sit at that table again it would be very upsetting right they wouldn't really be able to do that it would be very hard and he says you must not wonder that those who attain to this beatific vision are unwilling to descend to human affairs for their souls are ever hastening into the upper world where they desire to dwell. I think about this statement. This statement it's almost like you're reading a, a, a book on Islamic spirituality or something. I'm going to read you this again. It's, I, I read, I was like, subhanAllah, this is incredible. You must not wonder that those who attain to this beatific vision are unwilling to descend to human affairs, for their souls are ever hastening into the upper world where they desire to dwell. Okay? So if someone has a higher spiritual experience, again, on gradations of light, so someone, and, and, and we need not get super mystical and hyper-theoretical about all of this stuff. I mean, if you're sitting in this room right now, I would estimate that there's probably times in your life where you have been uh, less guided than you are at this moment. <laughs> like, I don't have to consider... Um, some heightened, super heightened level of spirituality I know what I am today And I know what I was 10 years ago So that's very clear That I look at the world differently And I can't even imagine going back To looking at the world The way that I used to look at the world 10 years ago Because it's just a whole different perspective So But you can take that to higher and higher levels Now to bring this back to the Prophet And how incredible Really, um, the example of the Prophet is and how deep his love for his followers was and how deep his concern for his mission was. 
Think about the Prophet and Isra and Mi'raj. Okay, so the Prophet goes from Mecca to Jerusalem and he's raised from Jerusalem into the heavens. And as he gets to the highest part of the heavens, then he is in intimate discourse with Allah. And Allah commands the prayers and they have a back and forth discussion about it. And then he's descended. And when he's descended, where does he go? He actually literally attained to the beatific vision. And it doesn't matter <laughs> if he's unwilling to descend to human affairs or not. Because he is, because he's the messenger of Allah. And that's his job. His job is to come back to human affairs and deal with the human beings. And the human beings are going to do all kinds of things to him. Sallallahu alayhi wa so much so that when he dies, his daughter Fatima radiallahu anha, what did she say? When they went to bury the Prophet وسلم, she said, are you guys happy now that you're throwing dirt on the face of the Messenger of Allah She wasn't saying this out of like hating the Sahaba or anything like that, but she's saying this out of mourning her father. You know, that this is all these things that he went through in his life. When Abu Bakr would come and the Prophet وسلم, is being abused, and he would tell him, are you going to kill a man just because he says that he believes in Allah? You know, but he's still there. The beatific vision is there. The knowledge of many parts of the unseen is there. Understandings of future realities are there. But part of that is that you can handle the difficulties of reality when you have the vision of someone who is connected to Allah. Now there's a very interesting hadith we were studying yesterday. Um, or I read yesterday, we didn't actually get to it in the class, but it's the hadith of Khabab ibn al-Arat. Anyone know Khabab ibn al-Arat? Anyone know the Sahabi? Anyone remember who he is? He's the one who is tortured so badly that he has like burn holes in his back, right? From the, from the burning charcoal and things that they laid him on. So he has these burn holes in his back. He came to the Prophet and it says actually in the hadith, وَكَانَ مُتَوَسِّدًا and in Kaaba. So what this literally means is that the Prophet ﷺ is in the area of the Kaaba and he's laying down with his head on a pillow. Okay? And he comes to him, Khabbad comes to him, he says, Ya Rasulullah, like we're going through all of these things, can you just make dua for us to have, for our enemies to be destroyed and for this all to end? And the Prophet ﷺ got upset. And he told him, people have come before you and they were literally sawed in half. And they had patience. And you're asking me to rush something. Basically, when Allah wills for it to happen, it's going to happen. Now, what I was thinking about, subhanAllah, if you think about this from like a very modern activist perspective on the world, this could be like very maddening. You almost imagine Khabab like in, in radiallahu an in the image of like someone who's just very deeply in the midst of all of these problems, right? And the Prophet ﷺ is telling him, look, when the victory of Allah is coming, it's going to come. We're going to stay here, and we're going to teach, and we're going to grow, and we're going to build a community, and eventually that community is going to get established in another place. He doesn't tell him all of this stuff. And eventually, there's going to be strength. But right now, you have to be patient. And it's very, very interesting, subhanAllah. But he's looking at it from a different perspective. The other one, I think I may have mentioned the last time, 
is that uh, when the Prophet them in the battle of uh, before the battle of the trench and they came to the stone that couldn't be broken and he hit it once and he said I see like the keys of the palaces of Persia and he hit it a second time and he said and now we see the, the castles of Rome or whatever you know the wording the particular wording is but they're in the middle of a battle this is the battle of Al-Hazab right this is the battle where all of this confederation of Arab tribes and everything came to Medina to literally wipe out the community of believers and they were seriously outnumbered very seriously outnumbered and they're going and they're digging this ditch to protect the border of the city. And he tells them, I see the palaces of Persia in our hands. SubhanAllah. Sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. So like, this is where we're looking. Don't forget where it goes. That the victory of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will come when it is meant to come. The question is whether or not you are in a position that is pleasing to Allah when the victory of Allah comes. Right? If you've done what you need to do from your own side. So the Prophet ﷺ descends after Isra Mi'raj, after literally the beatific vision, and has to uh, carry the message. And many people after him carried the message. Many scholars, many righteous people, many pious people, and they live in the same world that everyone else lives in. But it's not the same world. Again, in the hadith of Ka'b, um, Ka'b ibn Malik, I think it's ibn Malik, the one from uh, Tabuk, the one who was left behind in the battle of Tabuk, who stayed behind in the battle of Tabuk, and he had to seek Allah's, and he came before the Prophet and them, and he told him, I don't want to lie to you, I had no reason to not join the battle, and he said, Go, Allah will decide your affair. It's a very long hadith. Very important hadith, you should read it in Riyadh the Salaheen. Great book. Thank you, Ali, for the gift. May Allah bless you and your family. Um, and Amin. I'm, I'm assuming everyone said Amin. <laughs> so, Ka'b ibn Madik, he goes and he says, after all these days had passed, he says this statement. He says, and I'm living in the same place that I've always lived in, but it doesn't feel like the same place that I've always lived in. So this is an issue of like the spiritual and emotional well-being of the person. This is the same place. You know, same city, same people, same place that I live in, same home of my family, but it doesn't feel like that anymore. Because he's waiting to see whether or not his forgiveness is going to be accepted. Once his forgiveness is accepted, alhamdulillah, he says the best day that ever happened to him. Right? And the Prophet told him, this is the best day that's happened to you since your mother gave birth to you. That Allah accepted your repentance. And, and it's a beautiful story, but you know, it's uh, so many nice things in that story. One of the nice things in the story, just as a side point, but related to the, the lives of the companions of the Prophet them, is that 50 days passed and he was under boycott. So the boycott means that nobody can say salam to them. Nobody can talk to him. Nobody has any relationships with him. Um, he says, I used to go. And, and by the way, you know what I thought was interesting about this is in the context of being unlost. <laughs> uh, Kam says, no one was talking to me and I was being boycotted. And I would descend and go to the go to the masjid and join the congregational prayer. And I would say salam to the Prophet and I would look to see if his lips moved. And then I would pray next to him. 
and I would kind of like sneak peeks at him to see like, you know, is there any sort of softness towards me? And and this whole conversation goes on, right? And then when the repentance, when it was it was declared, when the Prophet ﷺ after Fajr prayer, he told the companions that Allah has accepted their repentance, then people literally ran to give him this news. So the point that's here is you see how this community is building each other up. One of the bad things that you see sometimes in Muslim communities is people um, make it seem like there's no opportunity for Allah's forgiveness. Right? So he says, they ran. One person came on horseback, another person just ran on foot. And they came to him and they gave him the news. He said, I was so happy. I took off my, my outer garments and I gave him my garments as a gift for like being the one who brought me this news. Because then I realized I didn't have any other clothes. <laughs> and I borrowed two pieces of clothes and I went to the Prophet them. He says, when I came into the gathering of the Prophet them, Talha ibn Ubaidullah, he stood up and he came and he hugged me and he congratulated me. And he said, when he did that, I never forgot that action of his. This is one of the nice points too, right? So like, make sure that even if our group is small and even if everyone knows each other and so on, that you say salam to each other, that you shake each other's hands, that you, when it's appropriate of course, and you give hugs and you ask how people are doing and so on. It's very, very important to, uh, to increase the bond. Mr. Sheikh Abdul Fatah Abu Ghaddur Rahimahullah in his book on Islamic manners, he said, um, he said that the Islamic manners are not only something that you do with people that you don't know. That the most the most deserving of people of your good manners are your own family. And he said something else is that when your friends visit you, even if they're close to you, you shouldn't be in your house clothes. It's very interesting. He said the Sahaba when they would visit each other, they would dress in their nicest of clothes and they would go visit each other because they want to give like this is they're honoring the person. Even if they're close to you, you still honor them. Because otherwise the relationship will get weaker. So a third point here on light, this is I think the last point on light, almost, is that the touches of the guidance of the Prophet are like flashes of light in a world of darkness. So whatever remnants you have of the Prophet life are like flashes in the middle of everything else. Um, and, and inshallah when we see the poem submission after Asr prayer you'll see an example of that inshallah and what, what, why this is important is because the Prophet them then becomes a guiding force in our own lives and there's so much detail in the life of the Prophet them that we have that you really can flesh out the whole experience so much so that you can like my wife mentioned I think in the first session that when her mom would tell them stories about the prophets and the companions and stuff like that, they would imagine it so vividly. She, you were saying that, right? You could imagine it so vividly that it was as if you were seeing it. About Afghanistan. About Afghanistan, sorry. Okay, about Afghanistan. Yeah, it's actually here in my notes. It's because I know other stories. That's why I'm meshing them. I'm a bad hadith narrator. And my notes even say it's about Afghanistan. <laughs> it is possible to get to the point of what my wife mentioned last time about how she would hear stories from her mom about Afghanistan and imagine and feel as if she is actually there. <laughs> so, and I still messed it up. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. But I was going to ask my 
like if you read the Martin Ling Sierra, yeah. and it's so detailed. I don't know if anyone else has read it. And then when you go there, if you have the opportunity to go there, you feel like you know you're going through all of the stuff that you've read. So it's similar to what you had said about Hanzo. That when you read it or you hear about it, then when you go there, you feel like you were with them. You're with them. Right, and this is the point. Right. Yeah, that's exactly exactly the point, right? And, and definitely the Sierra of Martin Mings is beautiful. It's very, very detailed, very beautiful work. And you really can get to that point, you know, where you feel... And if I can give one small advice, just don't watch the movie, The Message. Okay? <laughs> if, you, if you've maintained a state of purity, don't watch the movie. Because the movie really, I mean, I can tell you from my personal experience, it messed up a lot of things for me. Uh, because I was like a very new Muslim and I didn't know about the movie so the first things I was given to read were the seerah and the life of the companions and it was really vivid in my mind I wish I could have that again it's really vivid like this is what happened at this time in that place and this is the order and then I watched the movie and I was like that's not when that happened <laughs> you know that didn't happen right there that happened afterwards and this happened in this place and it just totally messed up the whole thing for me and it's not that it's something entirely historically inaccurate I'm not saying that at all I'm just saying that if you can read the book and experience it only from the book it, it's going to be a lot more vivid so we can get to the point where we feel like we're that close to the Prophet and then we have of course as I mentioned before the responsibility to carry his way and in this, in this line there's some very interesting hadith so for example the Prophet said whoever revives an aspect of my sunnah that is forgotten after my death they will have a reward equivalent to that of the people who follow him without it detracting in the least from their reward. So the Prophet ﷺ has all of these things he used to do in his life. And many of them we don't really do anymore. Because usually we do what we've kind of been accustomed to doing. And that may not encompass everything. So we lose some. So maybe you come across something and you realize, you know what, this is a sunnah. And I want to... like tell people about it and I want to do it myself I want to bring it back to life so the hadith says they'll have the, re the reward of everyone who acts upon it and another one uh, that's more debated but it's, it's not as reliable of a hadith but you get the idea it says whoever revives a sunnah of mine has brought me back to life so the idea is that when you bring us something from the life of the Prophet back into the memory in the life of people then you've brought the presence of the Prophet back metaphorically that he's that light is there again. And so this should be a space of great hope. Um, that even in, even in the face of much, much darkness, and, and you can still always uh, bring some light into it. And the Prophet ﷺ again, he also said, um, May Allah illuminate the countenance of one who hears a hadith from me and memorizes it and passes it on to someone else. Allah uh, you know, that the person who they hear from the Prophet send them a hadith and they remember it and they pass it on to someone else, then the Prophet prayed for them to have light in their face. That may their face be illuminated for doing this, for taking this sunnah of the Prophet send them and passing it on. And then he says, because it's possible that the person um, who carries a piece of information doesn't actually understand it. So what's interesting here is it's not even requiring that you understand it. See, you don't have to understand it to keep it alive. 
And it's possible that the person who carries a piece of information doesn't even understand it. And it's possible that a person who carries information carries it to someone who understands better than they do. And there's a story of this with one of the early scholars that he was, they, they, someone, there were two of them that were sitting together and one of them was a student of the other. And there was a question that was asked to them. And the one who was the teacher, he said, I don't know the answer to this question. And they said, what about you? Do you know the answer? He said, yeah, the answer is such and such. And he said, how did you know the answer to that, you know, to his student? And he said, I know the answer to it from the hadith that you taught us. <laughs> and you're the one who taught us the hadith, and I use that to answer this question. So it's possible that someone will carry the information to someone who actually understands it better than them. But all of that, then the Prophet then made dua that their face would be illuminated. Such a person's face would be illuminated. Uh, the third line of the poem. Should we get to the third line? فَمَالِ عَيْنَيْكَ إِنْ قُلْتَ كْفُفَا هَمَتَ وَمَالِ قَلْبِكَ إِنْ قُلْتَ اسْتَفِقْ يَهِمِي The what is then, why is it, what ails your eyes that when you bid them cease, they still weep more? And what ails your heart that when you bid it wake, it wanders? And actually, I'm going to read, a, a number of these are going to, We'll probably do it next time. We'll bring them together. Like it's not going to be one one for for the next. It's going to be a good chunk of them that come together because they're all on the same kind of meaning. But it says, "What ails your eyes that when you bid them to stop weeping, they weep more? And what ails your heart that when you bid it to wake, it wanders?" So this is continuing the interrogation. Right? We said the the poem starts with the interrogation. Is it because of this that you're crying, or is it because of this, or is it because of this? And what is it that makes it so that your eyes won't stop weeping? And what is it that your heart cannot focus? Um, so if it's not all of those things, then what is it? Right? And the thing is that when the feeling is so strong, it overwhelms everything. So let me just read the, the rest of these lines and then we'll probably stop here. So the next one says, أَيَحْسَبُ الصَّبُّ أَنَّ katimun." ما بين منسجم منه ومضطرم لولا الهوى لم ترق دمعا على طلب ولا أرقت لذكر البان والعلم فكيف تنكر حبا بعدما شاهدت به عليك عدول الدمع والسقم وأثبت الوجد خطي عبرة وضنا مثل البهار على خديك والعلم نعم صار طيف this one then is it gives a new one so it goes basically three to seven are on the same thing it says what ails your eyes that when you bid them to cease they weep still more and what ails your heart that when you bid it wake it wanders does the lovelorn man think that his love may be concealed when a torrent is in one part of him and in the other a conflagration this word is a tough tough one basically there's tears that are coming from his eyes and there's fire that's coming from his chest uh, but for passion you wouldn't weep at an abandoned camp Nor lie awake at night recalling the willow and the mount So how can you deny your love when witnesses of tears and sickness have testified to it against you? Lovesick passion was written upon your cheeks two tear lines Like yellow spice and red anum fruit So this is, these are the lines So basically this is saying if you're going to say that all of this is not true, then let me tell you what the reality is. The reality is that you cannot hide what your true situation is. It's clear 
from the tears that if this is not worry, what is it that's bringing those tears because something is bringing them the person who is completely a subbu is an interesting word that's used here um, and this is just kind of um, it's it's and, and we'll use that to come into the last point and then we'll talk about all of them next time so a sub is from the word for um, you know like if you pour water you pour the water and it flows a sub is a word that is for the love the love lorn person is a sub because why because the the love that they have is so overwhelming inside of them that it's just pouring out of them and it's especially in tears there's so many tears that are pouring out of them that it just it can't be can, can't be contained in any way so on the inside in the tears it's coming out on the inside you, you can feel this rumbling and upsetness you see that when they experience certain things and certain memories, they start crying. And when they see certain monuments, it brings back the, the reflections to them. Uh, how can you re say then that it is not love that is causing all of this in you when your tears and your sickness have testified against you? <laughs> you know, you're going to say it's not that, but we see the evidence, right? And, and, and this, this love that you have has created lines because you remember the first line that the, the, the tears are mixed with? Blood, right? So because the, te the, the analogy that was used is that there's so many tears that are coming that the tears actually start bleeding with the tear of the blood. And it says that it has put a line on your face like the line that is made from the red anam fruit. Which is like, you know, when you, you see sometimes in, in desert peoples or in tribal peoples, they take this certain fruit and they use it to paint their face. So the fruit that was used to paint your face red is this anam fruit. So he says this, the lines of the tears on your face, it looks as if you took this fruit and you wrote on your face from it. Right? So all of this then is an evidence that you're overwhelmed by something. And uh, the final um, couple stories then about that. I'll do a real one, and then, uh, or, or one from the companions that's very serious. And then one from my life that's really just very funny. And then it'll be a good point to stop on, inshallah. <laughs> so when you're completely overwhelmed with something, it, it takes over your experiences, right? So there's two of these uh, that come to mind. One of them is there was one of the battles where the Prophet and them went out to battle. And there was a woman who a number of her male family members went out to this battle as well. Her husband, her sons. And... After the battle, she received the news. They came to her and they brought her the news that her husband and all of her sons were killed in this battle. So all of the, the male members of her immediate family were killed in the battle, right? And what do you think her response was? Her response was, and what about the Messenger of Allah? Like, okay. What about the Messenger of Allah? The Prophet them is okay. He's fine. He's he's come back. And then she's like, okay, now I can worry about these people. Yeah. So on and so forth. There's another story of Abu Bakr radiallahu an that he was um, went out and made public dawah in Mecca. He was one of the first people to do so, and he was very seriously beaten. Um, and they say even like his they took sandals and stuff and they beat his face in and he was just really badly messed up and that he was taken to, to be cared for and when, when he woke up 
you know, and this is a big deal because Abu Bakr is not a weak person in Mecca, right? So now his family's kind of upset because their family member just got beat up, and that kind of means that they have to go to gang warfare, and it's a big deal, you know, and he's in the household of this family, and the woman who's taking care of him is, um, she's like, he's being taken care of, and then someone else is there, and then basically he wakes up, and they ask him how he's doing, whatever, and the first thing he says is, what happened to the Messenger of Allah, Is he okay? He said, yes, he's okay. He said, I'm not doing anything, eating, drinking, anything, until I see him, that he's okay. So they have to actually like take them to, to meet with one another and see him, and when he's okay, then okay, I'll drink, and I'll eat, and I'll do everything else. So this is the heart that is completely overwhelmed with love for the Prophet them that nothing else matters. All, all of the other things, they don't matter, and it completely overwhelms the entire experience of the person. Now for the funny story before we go to Asr, inshallah. The funny story is, when something completely overwhelms you, it encompasses everything in your life and you can't get rid of it, right? So when I was a really young kid, Nintendo came out. <laughs> Some of you might remember that. NES. NES came out. And NES came out with Super Mario Brothers. You know, it came with the set, with the duck hunt, the little gun. <laughs> and if you bring it right up to the screen, you always hit them. But if you go back... So we knew, because we were spoiled kids, I knew that if I really wanted this Nintendo, I was going to get it for my birthday. Like, that was not... That was given. Okay, the only question then was, where is it in the house? <laughs> I know that it's there. I have to figure out where it is and how I'm going to get to play it before it's the day of my birthday because it's not enough to just get it on your birthday, right? So I happened to have like an uncle who was visiting from Pakistan at that time. And I, after all of my reconnaissance and, and research and everything else, you know, homes are not... Old school South Bay homes are not big. They're usually like 1,000, 1,100 square feet. So the house itself, there wasn't a whole lot of places to hide it. And so I found it. I found the boxes under the bed in like my parents' room or something. When they were at home, I did my reconnaissance and I found it. So then I somehow convinced my uncle that he should help me to connect it to the television <laughs> so that we can play it. And alhamdulillah, the mission was accomplished. <laughs> and we played Nintendo before we were supposed to be playing Nintendo. Now the point is that this can apply to anything. When you allow your heart to be consumed with something, that will be what your heart is consumed with. And when you force your heart to be consumed with other things, then that will eventually, maybe not initially, but eventually that will be what your heart is consumed with. So we have to make effort then to consume our hearts with the love of Allah and the love of His Messenger and Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam.